Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from the guitarist from one of the greatest rock bands of the 70s, if not ever, Andy Scott from Sweet. Now today, unfortunately, Andy is the last sole remaining surviving member. Everyone else has passed on. And Sweet were really big in the 70s in the UK with hits like Ballroom Blitz, Little Willie, Fox on the Run, uh, Love is Like Oxygen. This one right here is one of my favorites, Teenage Rampage. They got some success in the States, but not enough, if you ask me. And by like the early 80s, it started to peter out. Well, now they're back and with all new members surrounding Andy. And earlier this year, so Sweet's best known album is called Desolation Boulevard. Well, super clever. With COVID and lockdown, they put out a new album earlier this year that is reworkings of their classic songs called Isolation Boulevard. So good. So I talked, I, this is really interesting because I, I'm fairly new to Sweet. I've been into them for about, I don't know, five or 10 years, something like that, but uh, have only really recently started buying their stuff. So we get a full history lesson here of what the band's all about. Uh, the songs, where they came from, they were heavily aligned, much like uh, much like Susie Quattro with Chinny Chap, Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman, who wrote a lot of those early hits until Sweet sort of took it on themselves and took over. Anyway, uh, great band. I hope you hear. If you don't know Sweet that well, then this is this history lesson for you, and I'm sure you're going to hear a ton of stuff that you'll love. And go check out Isolation Boulevard, okay? Andy called me from his home in Wiltshire, England. Hi, Andy. Oh, hello. There you are. How's it going? Yeah, yeah not too bad. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Well, so I've, boy, I have so many questions for you because I'm a fairly new sweet fan, and I'll tell you how that came to be here in a minute. So I, I'm loving everything I hear from sweet these days because it's only been in the last few years that I've become as obsessed as being uh, with you as I am. But let's talk about Isolation Boulevard first because it's a, <laughs> first of all, it's a genius name for an album considering your biggest album prior to this was Desolation Boulevard. And these are kind of reworked song, you know, classic sweet songs done over quarantine. What's the process? Are you guys kind of emailing and dropboxing files to each other to make it happen? Uh, there was only one way that this was going to work. Um, we owed Sony um, an album of new material. Uh, well, obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in lockdown and all that stuff's going on. And then all of a sudden, we were given a little bit of respite in September, October last year. In that moment, we decided now's the time if we're going to do it. And we had been talking about how, how to do something. Uh, and... I'm not the guy who is going to be holding the mouse and looking at the screen. I need an engineer with me um, when it comes to digital recording. And uh, I used to be a bit Neil Young. Mm. Didn't like it. Didn't sound right. All that stuff. Right. Sounds fantastic these days because what they've done, you know, th those guys out there, you know, with the updates and everything, it's fantastic. Yeah. The editing, the, the power of, of what you can actually do. But... The drums were going to be the main problem because we all want to be in the same place at the same time. So the best way of doing something is to do it from a point, from a standpoint where you know the material. And we hadn't had um, a new recording with the band that's been together for two, two and a half years 
with the new lead singer on it and all of this. So the starting point was getting a hold of some drum tracks with some fantastic editing and going back through the archives for outtakes of various recordings. We found we had 10 or 12 backing tracks that we could use or we could work with. Um, I re replaced most of the guitars. Uh, the new, uh, well, newish bass player, singer, came down to, to my studio, as did the lead vocalist on most occasions. And me and my engineer, we just pieced it all together. Um, they did some of the vocals and a couple of bits of recording in their own homes, um, you know, sent a few things through. Bruce, the drummer, he just had to approve the drum tracks. We found a great sounding drum track on one of the tracks. And of course, it being digital, you can yeah. now lift that sound yeah. and make Bruce play that sound on any of the other tracks. So um, it, it really became um, a little bit of a, um, not quite painting by numbers, but, but in, in, the, in that sort of ilk. Mm -hmm. And with, with the power of the editing, if something, the reason we hadn't used that track was that the drums kind of fell apart at that point. So, you know, and when you go back and listen, you go, no, we'll do another one. Mm -hmm. You're able to replace that yeah. because you'll find you'll find a, another take, bit, bit of a take somewhere and you can slot it in there. So yeah. um, it really um, uh, from an impossible task, it became a very credible task. Yeah. And I think that the end result is amazing. I do, too. And uh, I love it. I've been listening to it a lot. And I have a couple of questions about some particular songs on here. For instance, um, when you go into, let's say, let's pick Set Me Free, because that's kind of the, your, the new single, which has been, a, it's an older classic track, but it's just now being released as a single, and it sounds so good. I'm wondering when you go in to recreate a song like set me free, you go in and you think uh, for the sake of the fans and everybody, we should probably keep this as um, you know, as close to the original as we can. Or do you go in and you think there are a couple little tweaks on this song that I've always felt needed to be made. And this is my chance to make them. You know what I mean? Like how do you approach philosophically doing these songs? Um, well, the drum track came from one of the better um, tours that we did, uh, a live recording. Um, and the weird thing is, it kind of ended the way that it ended. So we must have been um, on that particular tour 
um, doing it in in that that kind of a way. Mm. We've edited the um, what's known become known as the beer can solo mm. out of the middle, where I use a beer can, you know, to get <laughs> to get sounds out of the guitar. Right. So in the extended version, you've got like a minute of all of that nonsense, you know, the um, the feedback and the and the howling and the and the scraping. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the single, because, you know, you, you want to get it played on the radio a, a, a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that we did, we got rid of the 70s kind of guitar things that, that, that I was doing, you know, those sort of um, vamping things, because we, we, we used to try and fill holes all the time. Mm-hmm. And because of the way that the, that, that the track developed when it got to the end we just kept the stabs mm-hmm. and um and we found um a, a keyboard sound that the kind of that had been used um or, 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 you know on the tour that almost sounded orchestral when you put it in with the guitars at, at the end and it's these mistakes that that you hear and you go well we're going to keep that you know yeah. um yeah. and um, I've also, uh, on a couple of tracks, um, Fox on the Run especially, the synthesizers that you hear on that track are from the 70s. I, I have the master, the 16-track master of Fox on the Run uh, that we've digitized. I've digi- digitized a lot of our masters because, I mean, I was the producer of the band. I mean, I've got the tape store here. Mm-hmm. And we, we send them off and they come back in digital form on a hard disk. So we were able to lift the original ARP synthesizers and shoehorn them into the new Fox on the Run. Nice. Um, you know, the, yeah. uh, the, the temp- tempo was pretty close. Uh-huh. And then you just, you stretch and you edit and you, well. Yeah. So you're now, you're now listening to the original synthesizers from the oh, 70s. Oh, wow. sounds so good and one of the real surprises on on the album is new york groove which is you know (laughs) when i listen to you guys doing it it's i it was it dawned on me like oh yes of course this is a perfect song for sweet to record and i gotta give it up to paul your lead singer a fairly new lead singer 
because you do uh, it's this collage of new york groove with empire state of mind coming in every now and then and his vocals especially on that part are incredible that is the bass player singing the empire state oh bit. really that oh is lee, lee small wow okay i thought that was paul doing the whole thing no he, incredible he has, a, he has an incredible voice too oh It's so good, and it's so genius putting these things together. I, having never, again, being new to Sweet, having never been able to see you guys live, was New York Groove a song that you guys have been performing? What made you decide to cover this one? Well, I've known Russ Ballard for years. Um, uh, I had him on I here. Mean, He's great. I mean, he looks, he looks fantastic, you know, and you wouldn't believe that, you know, he's he's a little bit older than me you know and, uh, um we did a gig with uh rainbow with richie blackmore about four years ago at the at the o2 and we did two arenas in england the one in birmingham the genting that, that used to be the nec and the o2 arena in london and russ ballard came along because obviously he'd written a few of the rainbow hits and he was going to get on stage with them and the first thing he said to me when he saw me, he went, oh, great to see you, Andy. He said, you should have always recorded um, New York Groove. He said, it's fantastic what you've done. Yeah. Uh, and because we'd, we'd done another version of uh, New York Groove on a previous album called uh, New York Connection. We, we had a covers album out called oh. NYC. And then somebody reminded me, they said, well, all you've done is, because the Americans kind of know um, Ace Freely. Mm-hmm. version of, of that song right. so s- someone said to me so he covers fox on the run and you now cover um, <laughs> you know, new york groove and, true. and I, it, it made me laugh because I, I i said uh, that there are probably th- at least three versions prior to ace freely that you would know <laughs> yeah. you know no that's the that's the dominant version that we get in the states for sure is ace's yeah. version well good i uh, so i was going to tell you it's funny you mentioned ace uh because what I'm finding, what I have found is that um, over the years as I've, as I've become a, a bigger fan is that Sweet is one of those bands that gets name-checked a lot as an influence, unfortunately for you, that for bands that went on to be even bigger. So for instance, yeah. <laughs> you know, so like uh, one of the things, one of the first, now I've always known the songs and I like them, but I never, I, it never, for whatever reason, I never like went deeper or bought the albums. 
And I remember Def Leppard covered Hellraiser on their covers album about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it was so good. And I really like their version and they're huge. And then I remember I saw, I saw Motley Crue in concert on their last farewell tour before the more recent farewell tour. And they're in the middle of the show, Nikki Six does, you know, kind of stops everything and gives a speech about these were the bands that influenced me. And thank you for your support all these years. And he lists Sweet as one of the bands that turned him on to writing pop rock music. And I think why are all the bands that are influenced by Sweet getting huge, but Sweet's moment is sort of, you know, more condensed to like the mid seventies, even though those songs live on. Do you ever ask yourself that question? Uh, there are times when timing seems, seems to be everything. Yeah. Uh, I have to look upon uh, me joining the band as uh, I have to think of that as a good timing, positive timing, because Definitely. I, I think the band, had been around for a couple of years before I joined and they'd had a couple, maybe three singles out. Um, one of them certainly got a lot of radio play, but you could hear they were the kind of that late sixties band that didn't play on their records, but the lead singer was on there, you know, that kind of thing. They were, uh, uh, there were people at EMI uh, doing what our songwriters, Chin and Chapman were doing, mm-hmm. like writing and making backing tracks and looking to, for a voice to, to front it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And quite frankly, I remember saying to Brian, the lead singer, I'm so glad that you didn't have that hit because that probably would have been the only hit that you had. You know all the bands that I'm talking about yeah. in, that, in that kind of... Um, uh, I'm not saying definitely, but there were yeah. so many bands in that late 60s who only had one big hit, you know? So um, from that point of view, but I think timing... Uh, the way we were going in 72, 73, the way we were changing so, so quickly, they, we, we, we would never have stayed in that goody two-shoes mold as, as, as people were trying to, uh, the, the, the songs that, that were being representative. And you see, I, I, I'm, a, I'm heavily influenced by some of those bands, especially the American bands like Vanilla Fudge. Yes, and, good um, one. And three dog night. Yeah. Um, and um, and then you go further back. You got the Beach Boys and the Beatles with with their harmonies, and you've got um, uh, bands like the Yardbirds. You know the 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 heavy rock bands, and you want to try and do that. You know you want to try and see if, if that will work with that. Yeah. And we were trying it all all through our B sides, but the powers that be that that, that were in you know, in control maybe more than the band was of its career back in 71, 72, wanted us to behave. Mm. And when you try and say to kids, behave, they don't. Yeah. And um, (laughs) I just think that um, if we'd been given a little bit more head back then, um, you see, it's very difficult for a heavy rock band to break into the pop scene. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, a few, well, maybe three years after us, Queen did it. Mm-hmm. 
you know. Now, there was if, if Freddie had stood up in 1970 and said, "I'm as gay as Christmas," <laughs> and I'm and I'm fronting a heavy rock band that's as should we yeah. say in its in its moment as heavy as um, as Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, yeah. it wouldn't have been acceptable. No. But by 1975, 76, it was. Yeah. And Freddie was a hell of a, a showman and, and fr- front man, whereas we were considered, um, we, people thought we were homosexual. Mm-hmm. And it's not until you come and see us live that you realize we're not. <laughs> so you had girls screaming down the front and guys on the balcony throwing bottles at us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you, you, you can't win in a situation like that. At least it wasn't like a football crowd where the bottles were full of their piss. True, <laughs> true, true. Yeah, you guys managed to. I mean, there was a there was a vein that never, never made it to the U.S. Unfortunately, Susie Quattro was on here last year, and she and I talked about this too. This kind of glam rock vein that you guys mined so well, Susie Slade, T Rex, these kind of bands that managed to merge, as you were saying that the great pop songs of the three dog nights type with the heavier rock stuff of black Sabbath or rainbow. And you guys did it so well. And for whatever reason, it never translated over here. When you were, when you were at the height of it all, were you at least going on tours of the U S I don't know if you were headlining, were you supporting a bigger band Aerosmith or something? What was happening? Well, everything's been out of sync in the US until the 676, 77. Okay. We started to have hits over there in 73, I think, but they were songs that we'd released a year earlier in 72. So our manager, Ed, who ended up managing um, Sammy Hager and um, uh, Van Halen after us, said, uh, Larry at Bell Records, lovely guy, he said, if you're leaving Bell Records, don't release any more sweet material. This was in 74, mm-hmm. because wherever you're going, we'll probably come with you. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it was, um, I think his name was, it was Rupert Perry at Capital who stepped in and said, Ed, we would like to sign the suite. Mm-hmm. And the whole point was, when the deal was up, which was in 74, we went to Capital. And they said, we're not ready. You're going to have to wait till 75. Mm. But I think they put the album out towards the end of 74, but it was technically a 75 album, Desolation Boulevard, Mm -hmm. which was a compilation of two albums that had been released in Uh Europe. Uh They cherry-picked all the good stuff from the Sweet Fanny Adams album Mm -hmm. and um, stuck it all on the, the Desolation Boulevard album. So we ended up with a couple of hits uh, in fact, four or five hit records that have been in Europe mm-hmm. on on one album. And no wonder it was going to be difficult to follow that. But right. um, the idea was great. But all it did was it put us on the back foot because, you know, we'd won an ASCAP award and everything with Little Willie in 73. Mm-hmm.
but everybody was kind of um, we were like a faceless band who just had a number three record in in America. Weird. And uh, when the videos finally started to appear in America um, on you know because you used to do promo videos and and, and and things like this, which were very cheap and nasty, you know, two camera things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they were scratching their heads, wondering, this isn't the band that did Little Willie, is it? You know, because by this time, you know, we were wearing silver leather suits, you know. Um, And and, and then a few years later, you see, Uh you've got Earth, Wind and Fire looking like a 70s glam rock band doing disco music. You know, by this time, we've moved on, you know, so... Yeah, you're never quite yeah. catching the wave at the exactly. exact moment. Either yeah. the wave is but, past you or you're past it or whatever. That's unfortunate. But you, you, you never got punk rock either, did you, Real, realistically? Not really, not really. Yes. You know, I mean, we have our own version. L.A. had the hardcore, you know, thing that still thrives in New York, had CBGBs, which isn't really pop. It's more or punk. It's more art rock. But yeah, yeah not to the same degree you did. No. Yeah. So, so, but. We were able to come to America with things like Love is Like Oxygen. thing was heavy over here but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a record producer and I used to hang out in Dingwalls and, and, and these places in London and I thought here we go they're going to start spitting on me but they uh-huh. didn't they, <laughs> right. they all wanted photographs taken with me and right. you know oh Andy's in you know come, come yeah. in here you know like the, the Blitz Club and I, I'm there in a, uh, a kind of um, a nicely cut leather jacket a pair of jeans and a pair, pair of white pumps and they're all dressed with hair like this, you know? Yes, yes, you know? yes yeah. So, okay, we got to talk about Chinny Chap for a second because, um, you know, when you were talking, uh, one of the things I keep thinking about getting ready to talk to you, and you sort of touched on this a minute ago, is that uh, they're, the faceless, the bands that are a bunch of faceless musicians with a lead singer that's coming in and doing the thing, kind of like the Monkees. And, you know, you talk to Mickey Dolan's uh, with of the Monkees now, and he likens their them to Pinocchio becoming a real boy you know at some point he doesn't want to be a puppet in someone else's show anymore he wants to do his own thing and my understanding is that Sweet sort of had that same come to Jesus moment in fact I believe it was action and that's why everybody wants a piece of the action guys wrote action it becomes a big hit 
And that gives you the strength of your own legs, your own feet to think we don't need chinny chap anymore. We can do our own thing. Do I have this right? Um, it's a little earlier than that. Um, oh, okay. We'd written, we'd written some stuff um, uh, that went on the Sweet Fanny Adams album. There was no single chosen from, from that album. Um, it, it was just released as an album. But there was a song, Fox on the Run, that we'd written on the next album, the, Des the European Desolation Boulevard, which our record company said, if you re-record that, um, think of it not as, as like the live recording that you've just made with Mike Chapman. And remember, Mike Chapman would always produce the things that he'd written slightly better. He'd treat ours a little bit more like a B-side, you know, right. ra rather than... So we snuck into a studio and re-recorded Fox on the Run. And, well, that became the biggest seller we'd ever had. Nice. And I, I remember Mike Chapman um, flying back from L.A., you know, once he realized that there was a new sweet single and they hadn't written it. Um, he, they came back and I remember him listening to it and he looked at me and he went, well, you finally did it. Really? You know, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I've heard that uh, he can be a bit of a dictator. Was he? Well, yeah. Okay. Not well, not not with us. I mean, you have to understand that the the, the catalyst that pulled us all together was Phil Wayneman, the producer, mm. um, the guy who was a he was a drummer in the um, in the band that backed the Walker Brothers, mm. and the um, uh, he was in a band called the Paramounts with um, uh, Gary Brooker from uh, Procol Harum. Okay. So uh, he and he was a drummer uh, and a good session drummer. Mm. So. He was the producer and he'd met and heard the songs from Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman. And he was looking for a project to put, put their songs into. I think the original idea was that Mike Chapman might just be the singer and front them. But I, I think he'd had that moment mm -hmm. in the late sixties with his, with a band, he'd been in a couple of bands. So he, um, he met Brian um, just uh, out of the blue. Um, and Phil said, I might have something for you. Mm. Brian went along, sang on a couple of their demos and they all liked Brian and liked the voice. And then Phil Wayman asked the question that Brian said yes to, is the band still together? And he said, yes, they didn't have a guitar player mm. at that moment. They, uh, they hadn't been on the road for a couple of months and they, they were looking. Um, so then they had to, Brian had to tell the truth. Uh, we don't have a guitarist. All right, let's set up a uh, an audition. And of course, I'm I'm in there af after yeah. that. But without Phil meeting Nikki and Mike, yeah, who in turn bring Sweet into the equation, yeah. it's like a, a triad. That's yeah. the starting point in 1970. Yeah, all this other stuff came later when Nikki and Mike were writing songs that they knew weren't right for us mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think we were, the ones we were offered were the, well, sl slightly more commercial. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they were starting to have hits, but, but they then signed themselves to Mickey Most, who is a, mm -hmm. a big sort of um, name yeah. in the, Rack like an entrepreneurial yeah, name. In, yeah. And from there, Mike started to become a producer. Both he and I learned a lot from Phil Wayneman, I have to tell you, you know, just I was always in the control room. I used to play my guitar from within the control room, you know, because I'd learned that mm -hmm. standing out there with a set of headphones on, you're not in control of your sound. Interesting. Interesting. So with a 30 foot cable wedged in the door, 
I'm in the control room and telling the guys what's being said here, you know, and and also saying, no, the guitar doesn't sound right. You know, yeah, uh, you need yeah. to move. Let's start moving the mics about or let, yeah. let, let's turn turn that, you know, either twin mics right. on two amps, you know, turn that amp up a bit because you're not hearing that one enough. And I knew what was going on. They wanted a slightly cleaner guitar sound and I wasn't having any of it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so I got to ask kind of a technical question. Does Nicky Chin, does he actually write anything? Because my understanding, I get the impression that he's the business guy and Mike is the songwriter, but the two, they're a two-headed monster. They come as a package deal, so they both get their names on there. So does Nicky actually even write anything? I think it's like comedy duos. There's uh-huh. always one who's funnier than the other. Straight man. They're, yeah. Yeah. And, and in songwriting, there's usually one who is the musician yeah. and the other guy who is the, let's sort the wheat from the chaff here. Uh-huh. Because sometimes musicians don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know everything. Right. But I can sit, I can sit with somebody writing a song and they come up with this and I go, that's rubbish. I'm, yeah. I, you know, let's not pursue that. Let, let's, yeah. There's a waste paper bin over there. Chuck, chuck it in there. Right. And I am so edit in my head. I'm editing ev- all the time. I don't even come out with ideas, you know, that, that I know are, are, are stupid. But but in songwriting, it's sometimes some of the stupid ideas that, that, that people come out with that are the most genius in the end. You know, and, and I think Mike had a bit of that. Mm. And what you have to look at here is even though he wrote a lot of the, he was the writer. Mm-hmm. Once he became a producer his writing went on the back burner. Oh, really? Well, he didn't huh. write much for, for Blondie. Yeah, you're right. And you're the, right. The, the only other songs that, that you can immediately come up with, and he was part of a writing team, are things like for, for Tina Turner, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the, the Pat Benatar song that, that she recorded was on our Sweet Fanny Adams album. You know, the, the No yeah. You Don't song. That's right. So... so and I'm afraid I'm as guilty of that, you know, because the older I've got and with my producer's head on, I don't write as much as I used to now. Um, I know that there's an album coming up uh, w- when we get out of this, finally get out of this lockdown and we can all be in the same place together to, yeah. for a few days to, to come up with some ideas and, you know, br- bring the ideas in and, and chop them about. Um, but I won't even start thinking about that until a couple of weeks before I know it's going to happen. Because if I do it now, I'll have listened to it and it'd be in the waste paper bin. <laughs> That's true. true. Now, one of the things that I think came across on one of the press releases or something that I got for you is that there might be a tour of the U.S. in the works with other 70s rock bands. Is that going to happen? Is that still being talked about? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, we can talk all we like. <laughs> okay, can, that's what I say, Yeah, you know, we can say anything that, that we like. Uh-huh. But yes, it was put to me a year ago that a, a certain promoter that I know and some bands that I'm very very friendly with and and we all get on like a house on fire. We do festivals together over here. He said, "This is the kind of thing I would like to put together and put it in small arenas over there, the sheds as 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 they're known." Mm-hmm. You know, and I, all I've said to him is, I'm now 70. Yeah. 
I want to be treated right. I don't want to be chucked in the back of a bus and do 500 miles every bleeding day or overnight because I will not survive that. Yeah. As long as there is um, the right, and I understand that to make things financially viable, there are going to be some moments when you have to do that. But you have time now, if you're going to do something like this, to map it out and make sure that, you know, you're not going from Chicago to New York, New York overnight. Yeah. And um, Seattle to L.A. overnight, you know, um, with, with, without the bands flying or, or something like that. Right. And, but, but you see, all of that needs to be budgeted in, in the right kind of a way. And, and I know that the other guys, you know, the, the, the guys who are my age in these other bands, they all feel the same. Yeah. So, you know, if we can do it comfortably where we can step on stage and not be in fear of falling down, mm-hmm. then, you know, it, it will happen. I'm, I'm pretty sure it will happen because I think there is a market out there. And um, no. I don't I, I really don't think that uh, everybody wants to um, wants to go and see um, an Ariana Grande concert every week. You know, the, the, oh. the, there is a need for something That's right. like this, Give me sweet. a little bit of feel good, you know. Yeah. And I feel like too, Susie, thank goodness, is starting to have a little bit of a resurgence in the States uh, with, there was a great documentary made about her a couple of years ago, uh, new albums and everything. And I feel like now's the time for Americans to continue to um, remember and uh, relearn bands like yours that may have slipped their minds a while back. Now, speaking of slipping minds, like it or not, everything is streaming today. I prefer having hard copies and CDs. But the only album of yours that's streaming is Desolation Boulevard. I can't get Give Us a Wink. I can't get Level-Headed. I, why? Why are these things so obscure? I don't know. I think somebody needs to um, stick a rocket up um, Capitol Records' <laughs> ass because it's all available over here. Is it really? Yeah, oh, that's frustrating. And, and, the, and the yeah, it is frustrating. Uh, so maybe we all need v, VPNs to tell people that we're, we're you're in Europe and I'm in America, yeah. and then and then I can have whatever the Americans have got. Oh. I mean, you even get you even get different things on your Netflix over there that we true. get over here. So yeah. you know, it's um it's all down to um what the uh, what Big Brother wants to give us. You know, that's true. And, that's so frustrating. Uh, and I couldn't get a copy and still can't w- without without doing something nefarious um uh i I can't even get a copy digitally of um of the american desolation boulevard because every time i go in to look for it uh, so i've ended up buying because because uh, i went through my whole record collection and i don't have a i've ended up paying some extortionate amount (laughs) for a cd of my own material that's criminal that's not how this yeah. should work oh my gosh and 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 i'm not on facebook yeah. i do not want to be on facebook or any of these other platforms because you know i come from an era where a little bit of privacy man you know yeah. you know don't don't take your shirt off you know <laughs> it's you know there are there are times when, when when these things you know um are good and there are times when these things are bad <laughs> And yeah. whatever you put in your digital platform will be there forever. Don't That's believe true. that you can you, you can remove it and get rid of it. Somebody will have had a screenshot of that at some point. So true. So and, true. 
and I had to join Facebook and and rebuff everything that they asked me just to go on Sweet's Facebook site. What a world. What kind of world are we living in? <laughs> so uh, true. I don't want to do this, but yes, I want a Facebook site for my band because uh-huh. I'm told it's the right thing. And we get some great people come on there. Yeah. And I can see the comments, but the only way I can do that is to actually be one of the silent majority on Facebook that's... who doesn't want any friends. Oh, that's so, that's so funny. <laughs> uh, okay, I got speaking of a digital footprint living on, um, I didn't know that you had made an attempt on, at some solo work. And so I pulled up Lady Starlight from back in the day on YouTube. It was great. And it made me wonder, was Andy at some point going to venture out on his own and be a solo artist? Or what was the plan there? In 74, just as we were recording the, um, well, we were about to record the Desolation Boulevard album. And it had to be postponed for um, one reason or another. And we'd made a start on recording. And one of the first things that we, we'd recorded uh, after the 16s was my um, song, Lady Starlight. Lady Starlight. Mm-hmm. And Mike Chapman said, this is a really good song. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. And Brian had got into a fist fight and been beaten up. And one of the things that they did was to give him a bit of a kicking around the head mm-hmm. and he had a bruise on his yeah. neck. Yeah. So he couldn't really sing properly. And there was a single needed to be released. There was something, mm-hmm. everybody saying, you need, we need to get something out. And we weren't ready with anything else. Um, you know, uh, we hadn't really gone into the studio to start the album proper but I had Lady Starlight recorded. So I got Mick, you know, uh, my drummer to come into the studio with me. And it was decided by other people, not me, that Lady Starlight should be a single. And I'm saying, right, but I'm not the lead singer in Sweet, you know, and, and then everybody thought about that. And they said, well, let's release it as an Andy Scott single. Mm. And I said, well, okay. Um, and, and when it came to doing the, um, the televisions, and, and it was a hit in, in a few places. Nice. Uh, and I, I did a lot of TV in, um, it, you know, in Europe and, and in England. Mm-hmm. And Mick and I were, were the two guys who kind of produced it in the end because we added some, some kind of strings and, and a couple of other things nice. and, um, and thickened my voice and, and stuff, stuff like that. Looking for Starlight, the lady made it all right. She was a lady, and I knew right from the start. Sweet Lady Starlight, come on and make it tonight. You turn it on so easy, and the lady is my lady. Starlight. 
did all right, but I wasn't convinced at the time that this was a good idea unless we were all taking a sabbatical for a year or do, doing something like that, like bands do. You know, I mean, the guys from the Moody Blues, you know, um, but theirs, I think, was because there'd been a challenge about the name from some of the earlier members. And so they released that album, The Blue Jays, you know, um, John and Justin. Yeah. So they, um, but it wasn't like that. And I was never going to leave the band. Mm-hmm. But, but obviously, the, as you rightly said, the, the questions get asked. Yeah. But when we were on hiatus at the beginning of the 80s, when Steve, uh, at the end of the tour in 81, um, he said to Mick and I, well, I'm going to America and I'm probably not coming back. So Mick and I are now thinking, okay, well, what do we do? It was probably the right time um, to kind of kick back a little bit. And I just remember, you know, talking to him and and going to America and being with him. He was living in a real small apartment in New York, but they're all small in New York, aren't they? And they cost a fortune. So I just remember thinking to myself, you know, yes, you want to be with a woman, uh-huh. You know, and, and I do fully understand all of that. But it's like, it's like being married when you're in a band. Mm-hmm. And one of one of your married partners is no longer there. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. you, um, I, I'm now recording and producing and, um, and an, uh, well, the engineer that engineered a lot of the sweet hits in the later days, Louis, uh, was putting together the Fleetwood Mac mobile studio. Oh. And and he wanted a, a guinea pig. Hence, I stepped forward. And we recorded um, the Ardeen Taylor song, Gotta See Jane, in this oh. mobile, with me playing all the parts. Played it to the guys at Jobet, which is Tamla Motown, 
Uh-huh. And the guy loved it, but he said, we're, we're not signing anything. And he put me in touch with Virgin, who then put me in touch with Laurie Dunn uh, at, at Static Records. And all of a sudden, I now have a solo career. <laughs> and we, we, we released about four singles between 82 and 84. But by that time, I'd also realized that I probably wasn't, you know, I, I had dreams that I was going to be the next, the next Mutt Langer. Right. You know, the, the record producer that you've all been waiting for. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't quite happened. And I was getting up on stage with all and sundry, any band that was, that was coming through uh, London. Mm-hmm. They'd have Andy Scott with his guitar on the side of the stage saying, let me on. <laughs> and somebody said, well, if you're willing to, do this why haven't you got the band back together and you know something there's something inside you that when you go back to something you're almost feeling not shame shame's the wrong word but you're you're going i should never have left this but yeah how do i how do i bring myself back in yeah. without it sounding like you know you know so you be honest yeah. and you say i missed it yeah i missed it and yeah and, and those early gigs that we did, the tours in Australia, they certainly weren't for money. But I'll tell you something. <laughs> I'll tell you something. We were selling out by the time we left Great. there. We were selling out 1,800, 1,500 capacities. Great. And, and still not being paid like we should have been. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but the band that we had when we first reformed, and albeit without Steve Priest, and we really wanted him to be there, uh, was was fantastic. You know, we had Good. Uh, Paul Mario Day, the original singer from um, Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, a guy from Weapon on bass, uh, Mal, who ended up becoming the lead singer after... We've always had lead singers in the band. You see, that's why the vocals have always been the way they should be. Yeah, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're all... And the keyboard player was um, Phil Lenzen, who's now with Uriah Heep. Nice. So... Um, it, was, it was an excellent band and it, yeah. it stuck together for about five or six years until Mick fell ill. And yeah. um, uh, and then I I didn't know what to do, but I carried on with the band, you know, from 91 yeah. th- through to today. Yeah. You're touching on something here that I have a lot of questions about. Everybody's career, every music, musician's career, no matter how big they are, comes and goes. There's ebbs and flows. And I'm always curious what, especially a band like yours that had a lot of hits, um, but for whatever reason are is kind of condensed into a period of time. Was there ever a lean period? Was there ever, you know, like in the, you just detailed what happened up until the end of, you know, the early eighties when you guys stopped recording, but you continued to tour a little bit. Was there ever a point in this where you woke up one day and you thought, I don't think I can continue on as a musician. I have to do something else. Or have you been successful enough to continue on as sweet this whole time? There have been a couple of wobbles, but not. Uh-huh. I've never woken up and gone, I'm, I'm going to sell all my equipment and take a job in a bank like okay. I did when I was 17. Okay. You know, I've, I've had one job in my life, six mm-hmm. months working for a bank. Mm-hmm. It was enough. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, no, that's never happened. But in that hiatus between 81 and 84, mm-hmm. 85, apart, if I hadn't had the solo recordings and productions and 
playing on other people's records. You know, I, I, you can hear my voice and guitar on quite a few hit records from that period. But from, I, I've never thought, that's it. You know, I, uh, I'm not going to, I even talked to a couple of record companies in this period about possibly being part of their A&R department. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't get the jobs. They all liked the idea and mm -hmm. got me in. And I suddenly walked away from that thinking I'm unemployable. Mm. I either know more or as much as the guy who wants to employ me. Yeah. And that can be a dangerous situation. Yeah. And I'm not a corporate person. I would have right. probably walked away from a job like that if, right. if some bean counter had started to turn around to me and say, you need to fill this form. Mm -hmm. You know, the second word would have been off, <laughs> you know. Uh, and yes. uh, yeah. there was another period in the late 90s after, as I said, Mick, uh, Brian had died mm -hmm. and Mick uh, w had fallen you know, ill with, with his leukemia, yeah. where I'm, and, and Steve's not interested at all in America. Mm -hmm. And I, it's coming up and I've got a band that isn't quite right. It's, it's millennium time. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm unhappy in my second marriage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things going on in my life. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm just thinking to myself, do I really need all of this yeah. cow dung in my yeah. life? Yeah. You know, but never did I think, you know, what you've got to do is you've got to look at each situation and sort it out, get the bad apple out of the band, mm. think about where the future is going to go. You can't think about your, you know, you're sad that, that, you, that, that your former bandmates are dying and that your guy in America doesn't want to know. Mm -hmm. You've just got to get your head straight. And by 2001, 2002, if it hadn't been for um, the, the keyboard player that I had in my band at that time, the second guitarist keyboard player, Steve, who he and I started to write songs right. for, it, it was going to be, we, I, we weren't sure, but we called it Sweet Life. Oh. Was it going to be a musical? Yeah. Because all the songs, when you listen to the songs, they're all like, yeah, join, you know. They are. Yeah. And and um, and that brought me back, you know, straight in there with with a new um, uh, with a new vocalist and and, and and we were off, you know, Good. and and things, you know, but but they're, they're little wobbles. Then they're, they're yeah. not like, um, you know, uh, petulant frenzies, you know, um, as Frank Zappa would have said. Right. I was wondering, too, I, I would think and this is something that I've I'm curious about in your industry in general, when someone like you, see, I think of it like a, like a sports team, you know, if the, if the Lakers are going to drop uh, LeBron James, there are every other team in the league want, is going to fight to get jo LeBron James on their team. If Andy Scott from sweet who has influenced and been beloved by all these bands that are huge right at that moment in the late mid to late eighties, if he suddenly becomes av available don't the Joe Elliott's and the Nikki Sixes and everyone else want a piece of Andy Scott on their team? Do you start getting called to come and co-write with us, come and play on an album with us, guest star with us? Do you get those kinds of calls? <laughs> well, the quick answer is no. Really? I would yeah. die to have Andy Scott play guitar on my album. Are you kidding? Well, that's, very, that's very kind of you. And, and every time... 
I mean, I did speak to Nikki Six uh, when when it, I was sent their demos okay. on a cassette. They were horrible. They 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 were really not um, yeah. not the best things you've heard. But yeah. what um, Roy Roy Thomas Baker, I think, was in in L.A. at the time, living there maybe. Mm-hmm. And somebody had said to him, "This band are going to go places." And he grabbed those demos and did something with them. Um, probably the best that, that could be done but that that's that that was their first album that kind of got them off 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 yeah. the ground slightly yeah. and it's the same yeah. with iron maiden you know when i had iron maiden in the studio they wanted to try and just replace the drums but the track was so uh, this running free song mm-hmm. but when the i said to them you need to re-record this in the digital age yes mm-hmm. i could have repaired that 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 drum track and it would have sounded great because you could you can do things, mm-hmm. but analog. And then and I said, and you want me to start recording new drums over that? And if it doesn't work, you've destroyed what you have. Mm-hmm. Have you copied the master? No, mm-hmm. you know. So we're um, it. It's a difficult um, equation. Yeah. Now I see what goes on. People who've influenced people. They get the phone call and they say, "Do you want to come and be a guest on our, on our thing?" You know that there is a little bit of that, um, um, tipping your hat to yes, yes, to, to your influences. Yeah. I think back in the late seventies, early eighties, there wasn't really any of that. Um, I did offer to come over and and produce um, the the Motley Crue stuff, but but I said, "Are you writing new songs?" And and Nikki said, "Yep, yeah, we are." But I gather back then there were probably a few um, uh, substances being. Um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> probably count on that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, I, I never got the air ticket. And um, and a few months later, we heard that, that you know, through through the business that that there was an album coming out for them. And I, and I'm, I just remember thinking, well, they look good that, you know, they reminded me of Sweet. Um, and then somebody told me. But when they found uh, Vince, they actually put an advert out there saying, wanted Brian Connolly, blonde hair from Sweet as lead singer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, look, I could talk to you for hours, but Andy, um, I'm just, I'm grateful that I, it took me long enough to fully discover Sweet because in the last couple of years that I have, every household in the world at least needs a Sweet Best of CD in their collection. There's right. nothing well, that, like it. And well, anybody who says, I yes, and anyone who says it's more style than substance or it's shitty chap, it's not a real band or it's the harder Bay City Rollers or whatever, I totally disagree because you guys were killing it. Everything you did, and it stands up. It stands the test of time as being these killer rock pop songs. They are still just as hot and vibrant as they were then. So thanks for, yeah. for everything you've done, Andy. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andy. Have a good one, sir. Thanks, man. You too. Take care. All right, there you have it, Andy Scott. Such a good guy. That band is the best. Isolation Boulevard is the album, but if nothing else, just go get you a sweet greatest hits. You will love every track. 
And we had to close it out with Ballroom Blitz because that's probably the one they're best known for. I don't know. Anyway, Andy's such a good dude. Um, now, next week, again, I'm not 100% sure what we're going to go with. I'm leaning toward, you know, you guys, we love the session musician interviews. And I have an interview with a prominent session guitarist who wrote some hits and went on to score a lot of movies that you know. And I think that's the one that's going to come out next week. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, anyway, I think that's what we're going to do. Now, if you guys don't know by now, uh, our good friend and intrepid producer, Yan the Man, his dad passed away uh, on Sunday. And um, so I didn't want to make him... <laughs> he has other things to think about besides a podcast. So this week, we are very blessed to have production duties from the podfather himself, Ken Mills. We're so lucky that Ken stepped in to backfill for Yan this week. Thank you, Ken. We love you. Everybody out there probably knows Ken Mills. Give him a love. Give him a shout on Facebook or whatever. We're lucky to have him. You guys know what to do by now. You can like our page on there. You can send us a message on Facebook. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. If you're already friends with Yan, you may want to send him your condolences. Or you can send messages on the Facebook page. Yan sees those as well. Who would have thought in the last seven months that both Yan and I would both lose our dads out of nowhere? We, that was totally unexpected. Anyway, thanks, folks. We love you. We'll see you later.